in one year, two years, three years, four years, maybe in five, we'd bring out a new product. That's what it would work like. Well, with social media, I got instant feedback and now I can make adjustments to that. And, you know, I had marketing research budgets of a hundred million dollars. And now I'm cutting that to like three million because I've got this great, great, you know, landscape of all this data coming in at me that I didn't have before. Plug into the minds of the world's cutting edge innovators, visionaries, and thought leaders who are rewriting the rules of sales and success. It's your time to make an impact. I am your host, Jason Mark Campbell, and this is the Selling with Love podcast. Welcome back, everybody, to the Selling with Love podcast. I'm so excited to have a business celebrity, a host, podcaster, author, speaker with me today. It is Jeffrey Hazlett. He's his prime host of C-Suite, and he has his own network of C-Suite executives where he gets to educate them, train them, and really give them the tools necessary to build, scale, and succeed in business. Former executive within Kodak and worked with so many different organizations, has frequently been cited on places such as Forbes, Success, Mashable, Marketing Week, and Chief Executive, amongst many others. He is a public speaker, has taken the international stages, has wrote multiple best-selling books, including Think Big, Act Bigger, as well as The Gauntlet, and so many more. And we're going to be discussing today about the role of sales when it comes to C-suite, how businesses need to think differently and maybe change our direction and mindset when it comes to looking at executive and the critical role they play in the success of organizations as well. Jeffrey, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here today. I love having conversations when it comes to inspecting what's happening at the top layer of organizations. And when I turn on the media, I listen to stories, I read a newspaper, it seems like CEOs are often more in the press for negative reasons than positive reasons. And given that you've been in these positions, you've worked with a lot of them, do you feel there's merit to the kind of backlash or negative bias towards CEOs? Or do you feel there's a lot of good things that are being done by the C-suite that most people never even recognize? Well, I tell you what, there's an old saying that says that where there's smoke, there's fire. So we're Some deserve it, they deserve it. But by and large, most CEOs, by and large, are doing a great job. When you look out there and just look in North America alone, there's 28 million businesses out there in North America. You don't see all those CEOs getting a bad rap. You see most of those doing a great job because they're value-based. They have great values and trying to do the right things that most of them put people above profits. But there are those bad actors, those asshats, if we want to call them that, that's what I would tend to call them, who really just don't care, don't have the values really going at, you know, looking at the bottom line and that maybe a little bit of the top line, but they're really just don't, you know, run their businesses based on values and they deserve it. You know, if you see a CEO who's earning multiples, multiples over what his employees are earning, then maybe they got their values screwed up, you know? And I would tend to say that. Now, and I'm a CEO myself, but I love to make money. That's how we keep score. But at the same time, everybody in the operation should also make a fair wage, you know, be able to put their kids through college, you know, not have to take three or four jobs to make ends meet unless they want to run those side, side hacks on their own. You know, so, I, you know, we, if and when someone does get a bad rap, it's typically because they deserve it. Now, not all. There are some ones that probably, you know, get raked over the coals when they shouldn't. But, you know, for those that do, there's smoke, there's usually fire. (laughs) 
Well, I think that's why we're not too far apart from who we represent as the good guys within an industry, because obviously I come from the place of sales and sales gets a bad rep as well. And what I'm trying to highlight is some of the most effective things that salespeople do when they do it right are actually very good things that we can all agree on, like listen more, care for others, understand, and then provide a service that's above what you're asking for. So you actually have some positive value. I'd be curious, even in the executive space, what do you think is one of the most like undervalued things that executives at a high level in a big organization do that most people don't even see, but makes such a difference? You know, a lot of people think that the job of a C-level executive is to be the smartest person in the room, and that's not their job because I've sat in those boardrooms, I've sat around those C-suites, I've bought and sold over 250 companies in my career, 25 billion you know, my last big company, my marketing budget was $17 billion. So just to give you an idea, 7,500 marketing people in my organization, uh, 180,000 employees, you know. So when you sit around that table, you find out these people are not the smartest. The thing that they get undervalued for is they typically are the most strategic. They're trying to do the right job. They're trying to really think ahead where it is. And I don't think a lot of C-suites, you know, get that kind of credit. And by the way, they're making life and death decisions in that boardroom. When you really sit down, and I tell people, you know, C-suite, when you're at that level, you know, this is there are more people playing professional football in the United States than there are C-suiters at a Fortune 1000 company, right? So it's a very heady position. It's a very limited in terms of the number of people that do it, and you're making some big decisions. You know, you might have to lay off 8,500 people. That affects people's lives. You might have to make a decision on cutting back on health insurance when that might result in someone not getting the care that they deserve or want or should have, you know, in terms of that. So I think, you know, the thing that's probably undervalued is the kind of decisions they have to make and that they're mostly, you know, focusing on strategic decisions. And it's hard. It's hard to be there, you know, to sit there in those rooms. And I've sat around that board table numerous times. I serve on 12 corporate boards. Four of those companies are public. And we make some hard decisions. And by the way, most people don't know. If you're sitting on a board or you're in the C-suite, you're getting sued all the time. I mean, you have to have insurance on every board I'm on. I have to have insurance when I'm at a C-suite officer because, you know, there's there's shareholders suing you, customers suing you, vendors suing you, all these different things, you know, good and bad. Sometimes you might deserve to get sued. I've been on a board one time where they deserve to sue us because of some of the decisions that that chairman CEO was making. And we at the board level felt he was making the wrong decisions. But that's a rare case. But Certainly, it's tough up there. And by the way, it's very lonely in the C-suite. Everybody thinks, oh, it's hustle and bustle, but it's a lonely kind of place because of these kind of things. I'd sit around, Jason, sometimes in these meetings and go, geez, somebody ought to do something about this. And I'd look around the room and realize, well, that's me. I've got to do something, so... I love hearing these stories because it doesn't look like regular life. Like, you know, for the average person, they do their job and everything and they think like, oh, these people at the C-suites, they don't even know what they're talking about. They're doing stupid decisions and it feels like it's this big disconnect when it's in a large organization. But what you're, what you're painting the picture is, is like most people haven't taken the time to like even understand what pressures are being faced there. I can even think about, you know, Bud Light had that huge backlash. Oh, yeah. What a big screw up. Yeah. For six cans of beer, by the way. I know. So they do this, like, a small campaign where someone brings an idea. They're like, why not? And then the backlash, the media, and this person's under fire. Like, every little decision can result in a movement that's so big. And material change. When you make a decision like that, 
And that was a massive material change where they lost about four to six billion dollars in market cap and value of their company for you know doing something that was fairly innocent. The problem was their response to it and also the background story behind it. And you know, to call out the brand, you know, against its true roots of the brand. A brand is nothing but a promise delivered. And Bud Light stands for certain things. I mean, red, white, and blue, the Clydesdale, Budweiser's, and all the things that go with it. It's true Americana. And it's a little bit redneck, okay? Let's just say it like it is. If I were the chief marketing officer, that's how I would describe my brand in terms of that's who we deliver. I mean, that's just, it's a core of America. And to say, you know, let's go and do this. And they actually, the brand manager at the time called him a frat boy image. Okay, but that's your brand. You can't walk away from what you've developed and built over decades and decades. You can't change a culture overnight. It Culture takes a long time to change. And the same thing with the brand. So, you know, when you make mistakes like that, you got to just suck it up. I mean, and go back at it and say, we screwed up. Let's don't do that again. You know, Bubba made a mistake. And I would come out with a whole campaign about Bubba screwed up. And but yet, you know, they're not doing that. And so therefore you can't sweep it under the rug and you can't just fire a person because somebody up the line saw that campaign or they should have seen it. They should have seen it. And that says something about the company, too. Hmm. You've been involved as an executive for years and, you know, you've witnessed this rise of social media and new media and how different now the role of the public image plays and how things can go viral and every decision seems to be even more scrutinized. What's your thoughts on the role of being an executive today before the social media versus before when there was no social media? You know, I was one of the first thousand people on Twitter. And in fact, I did another interview today and someone said, Jeff, you were one of the first people. I said, yes, we were. And they said, well, how did you make that bright decision? I said, I didn't. I listened to my team and my team said, you got to sign up for this Twitter account, right? You got to sign up for this Facebook account. I'm going, what the hell is this? You know, I'm not taking pictures of my food. I'm not going to let people know what I'm doing, you know, because you got to imagine as execs, we can't like let people know where we're staying. We don't stay in the same hotels typically where our employees stay because you don't want to run into them if they've been drinking. You don't want to run into somebody if they're coming out of a hotel room early in the morning, you know, whatever might happen. Or we also get death threats at some of the major companies, kidnapping attempts, and we've had those kinds of things. So we had to put in kind of policies. I had to learn these policies. Like we don't tweet we're at, we're at that day. I mean, things like that, because people would show up and we've had, you know, security threats where people would show up. This is early on. Because when you think about it, if you're laying people off, you're making big changes. If you're in some countries where this thing is fairly common, you know, and you're an exec and they know you're there, you're a target for those kind of things. But I believe early on, I named the very first chief blogger. I named the very first chief listing officer ever to exist in the world in business. And I saw that that was important. Why? Listen, for, let's think from a marketing perspective. Marketing typically, you know, is the inception of the idea all the way through customer satisfaction. And the way in which we had product innovation was top down. You know, we'd have four meetings a year, planning sessions, and maybe in one year, two years, three years, four years, maybe in five, we'd bring out a new product. That's what it would work like. Well, with social media, I got instant feedback on the camera. I got instant feedback on the phone. I get instant feedback on the tires, right? Whatever I'm selling or whatever we're marketing, and now I can make adjustments to that. And by the way, it's free. It's OPM, other people's money. You know, I had marketing research budgets of $100 million. 
And now I'm cutting that to like 3 million because I've got this great, great, you know, landscape of all this data coming in at me that I didn't have before. Not to mention what it does for customer service, right? In terms of solving things in real time. So I saw that fairly early as a way in which you could have your brand voice, you know, and change the way that we did it because now content drives community and community drives commerce. And it used to be a lot different in the early days in 2006, 7, 8, 9, when social media was first getting started to what it is today. I mean, it's just massive. I mean, you can go on social media and make a huge impact. You can make one stupid mistake and pretty soon you've got a big problem on your hand or you got a big success. There's some things that we do on social media that nobody does. I announced the ending of Kodak Kodachrome on social media and I did it by interacting with the characters of the show Mad Men. As a CMO, I was interacting with those characters, and they have real characters on Mad Men on the Twitter account. And I was predicting that in a certain year, Kodak Chrome wouldn't exist. Well, I was letting people know that a year later, we were going to let that product go, but I was predicting it as though I was in 1962. So there's lots of things you can do, and how fun was that, right? And that's the way in which we did it. So there's a lot of cool things that you can do with social media. I mean, Kentucky Fried Chicken, let me give a good example. One of my employees uncovered Kentucky Fried Chicken was only following, of its entire Twitter account, seven people. What is it? Seven herbs and spices? So they were following the Spice Girls and four guys named Herb. And one of my employees said, what are they doing? Why are they following only seven people? It was seven herbs and spices. So herbs and the Spice Girls. And he found that out, and they sent him a painted picture of the colonel, and they announced it. They thought it was a publicity by me and my team, but I had nothing to do. I didn't even get a bucket of chicken out of the deal. But, you know, how cool is that? How cool for a brand to be able to do something like that? They said it took a year almost a year and a half before people figured that out. Yeah. I thought that was the coolest thing that Mike Mike was our employee and he did that. And I thought, wow, what a smart guy. What a great guy. And what a cool thing by Kentucky Fried Chicken, quite frankly. And here we are years later on a podcast still talking about KFC because they've done something that was actually in tune and listening and fun and like not what you would say, like the top down like just getting a pulse and being more connected. And I can see the difference between a campaign there. It's like, what are the risks? How aligned is it? Herbs and spices. It's kind of like fitting the KFC brand. And you see what happened at Bud Light and, you know, how there was a massive disconnect. So like, how did that happen? Is like, feels like a lack of listening, which seems to be the biggest problems that could get companies into trouble the same way that it gets salespeople into trouble, right? Well, I mean, but think about this. What happens, it made it easier for Kentucky Fried Chicken to only follow seven people because they have the opportunity to follow millions of people. Well, what happens if they follow, I don't know, a white supremacist or a Nazi lover or something like that by accident, right? And then someone finds out. So this made it even simpler to follow seven herbs and spices. That was it. And I thought, well, that's brilliant because, you know, as a brand, who do you follow, not follow? You know, and you know, imagine back then at Kodak, we had people who would use, for instance, there's a song out there that had the, you know, Kodak, and then it also had the N-word in it. Well, how do you respond to that as a brand? How do you do that? We partnered with Playboy. Oh my gosh, how can you partner with Playboy? Well, last I checked, the First Amendment says, you know, freedom of speech. 
And freedom of speech says you get to print these kinds of photographs. You get to do these kinds of things. Do we say, no, we don't? Or do we follow what the Constitution says in our host country uh, where we were founded? So these are decisions that you have to make sometimes. And we had to find out, well, we might not condone the use of a certain word in the song. We recognize the iconic nature of our company and the role it's played in all culture amongst all sexes, races, and socioeconomic, you know, populations. So that's the way we had to respond. You know, I had a team saying, oh, we've got to denounce this song. So we're not denouncing that song. That's a rap song. That's what they do. That's how they use it. That's not for me to say. I'm a middle-aged white guy. I'm not the guy that should be saying this. You know, I shouldn't be defending it, but I will defend it because that's what we should do. We should be able to recognize that people use different things in different ways, and it might not fit what my morals are, a way I would say it, although I typically will be known to use a little blue language here and there. In fact, most of my podcasts have red dots on them because of my kind of language. I've threatened to, you know, to punch up one guest in his throat one time because of the way he acted on the show. But nonetheless, you know, everybody should be represented. Everybody should be heard. My job's not to change your opinion. My job's just to understand you a little bit better. What I like with what you're sharing right now, Jeffrey, is that you have this awareness of what you stand for. And I know that companies do a lot of work when it comes to saying, what are our core values? What's our mission? What's our vision? And you can see sometimes it seems just like a checklist of things that are quite generic and there's no like meat to it. But when you go into organizations, do you find that there's a massive benefit to getting that clarity? And is it something you find difficult or easy to do? It's hard to do, but once you have it, it makes everything else so much easier. It makes every decision, the way you run the company, it's like a weight that's lifted off employees because now they know what our core values are, right? And I will tell you, value-based companies do gross more money, net more money, have more engaged employees, have customers who are happier, vendors who want to do business with them. And when you walk through the town, everybody goes, there goes a hero business. There goes a business that knows its values. And we all know those businesses in our local communities. You know, they're the ones that pay for the symphony. They're not just doing it because it's a good advertising thing, that it leads to good sales. They're doing it because it's the right thing to do. But it's tough. And a lot of companies don't sit down and spend the time. You know, they get started. They got a great idea. They think they're going to go out and solve this problem, which is the biggest thing that most businesses should be doing is what problem are we solving? What are we trying to do? But if you think about what are we trying to do, your values are going to come in questions. You know, I know that the software is not quite ready, but we got to, we got to get it out for the month. We're going to set a record month. We got to ship it. We got to ship it. You know, whoa, whoa, whoa. But that's going to fail. Is that inside of our values? Is that right? We know that the customer is going to return this product. We know that they're not going to be happy with it. Is that the right thing to do? Or can you, as this employee, shut down our line and say, whoa, there's a big mistake here and we should not do this? And so these are the kind of things that you got to wrestle with. But imagine an employee who has that kind of power that says, you know, Mr. CEO, look what I found. I know that you would not want this because this is who we are. Well, that's a powerful, powerful statement, and what a hellacious company that could be. Hmm. So as you know, I also work with organizations to do management, and when I walked into one group I was working with and I saw that that didn't exist, I felt like I couldn't get people to rally around why certain decisions were being made. And I remember one of the basic ones was I spoke with the founder, I spoke with the brand owner, and one of the key things they immediately said was everything must be done with excellence. And then I went to the social media and I saw that posts were done kind of half ass if I can use my language as well. 
And it was such an easy way of using that as an example and just showing to people like, hey, look, does this represent excellence? And when people get it, now I see everything leveling up and it makes everything else be more in line. But I'm talking about working with a very small team. Like I'm talking about dozens of people. In your case, you're working with like hundreds of thousands of employees. How the hell do you manage the flow of information? Most people can't manage a relationship with 10 people in their personal lives. <laughs> you keep it simple and then you communicate, communicate, communicate. So, you know, you take to the airwaves, you use all the things that are, you know, at your disposal. And when I got at Kodak, for instance, we didn't have that. More the problem was the mood. You know, how do you change the mood? First, you got to change the mood. You know, if you get to a company and they think their best days are behind them, oh, man. That's a tough thing to change. They say, hey, Jeff, make us cool again. Well, you can't be cool and look dressed like Elmer Fudd, right? So we've got to change it. we got to upgrade. we got to look. we got to walk the talk. Again, a brand is nothing but a promise delivered. So what are our core you know, attributes? What are the things? And then you have to be radically transparent in that conversation, right? You know, when I first got the Kodak, people would tell me that a million people visit our website every day to look at the picture of the day. You know, and when I, not literally, about three months ago, I heard someone from Kodak speaking and they used the exact same phrase. Those are stories. Those aren't true. And so when you hear stories, what you have to do is question those stories inside the company and say, let's don't live on stories. Let's live on, you know, radically transparent information. Let's create a healthy culture of tension. Let's have some healthy tension. Let's question things. Let's just don't assume about things. And so, you know, you have to start changing it up and mixing it up. And you have to lead from the front. I mean, as a CEO or CMO or, you know, that was my job. My CEO, I was lucky. He trusted me a great deal. He gave me a lot of rope to either hang myself or to lead. And But he also gave me a great deal of air cover because I was out front all the time. That was my job. It was no, it was clear that I was the cowboy out front, go and cause havoc, you know, basically. I was tearing up carpets in the hallways. I was taking down posters that hadn't been changed in 20 years, you know, and things like that. Anything to make the company, you know, look as though it was fresh again and new again and be the kind of image company that we once were, you know, changing the business cards. You know, at Kodak, when you got there, they took your picture and they put it on a business card. I would be in rooms with people and I couldn't recognize them because they'd never updated their photographs. We're at Kodak. And I'd be sitting there and I would say, how long you've been with the company? 27 years. The average length of an employee at the time when I got there was 27 years. And so you would look at their picture, and if I didn't know they were a black male and they were the only black male in the whole room, I wouldn't have known that was him. You know, I put out a memo that we're going to retake all the employees' pictures. And right away, they came to me and said, you can't do that. And I go, why can't we do that? They said, well, we can't afford that. I said, we're Kodak. If we can't afford taking pictures, okay, are you nuts? You want you want to hear that on the front page of the Wall Street Journals? I said, you can leave right now because we're doing it. And then the next day, guess who came to see me? You know, it was HR legal, you know, captains of no. And so they came to see me and said, you can't do that. And they, I said, why? And they said, oh, because I was going to allow everybody to put a picture on the back of the car too. Put a picture of your cats if you like your cats more than your kids. Put a picture of your car, whatever. I don't care. Whatever you were passionate about. Put that on the back of the card. And then on the front, by the way, you can put all your social media handles and everything else. This is back in 2007, 2008. Nobody was doing this, right? 
And so I said, this is what we're going to do. We're going to be cool. We're going to be a good company. We're going to be an emotional technology company. This is what it's about. We're going to take pictures, new pictures for everybody. You got to wear red or yellow on the picture because that's our colors. Otherwise, I'm not using your picture. You won't get your picture on there. So you got to put something red, yellow, button, whatever. I don't care. But that's what we're going to do. Everybody's going to do it. And everybody thought it was a blast, right? So they're passing around ties, passing around hair ribbons, brooches, pins, everything. It was the coolest thing in the world. And then on the back of the card, they said, well, you can't do that, Jeff. What happens if someone puts something inappropriate on the back of the card? I said, I hope they do. I mean, how else are we going to find the stupid people, right? (laughs) (laughs) By the way, there were three of them. There were three people who did something inappropriate on the back of the card. But but that's how you find them. That's what you do. It's a test, right? And by the way, you should be able to trust the people that you're working with. And if three people around the world do this, some idiots, and they happen to be in England, by the way, all three of them were in England. And then, you know, you idiots, you deserve to get the hell out of our company. I... <laughs> That's a true story. Absolutely I know true, it's a story. true story. Yeah. I feel that story. And, you know, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts because it sounds like when you jumped into that C position, like you went to the ground and you really got yourself a pulse of what's going on, understanding that change management needed to happen. Well, I got dirty. I got my hands dirty pretty quick. So what do you feel about the fact that we're portraying on media things like undercover CEO or undercover boss and the boss kind of goes into this? Is that real? Yeah, it is real. I was actually asked to be on the very first episode. And I was so well known in the company because I was such a champion. You know, when I left that company, the employees took my business card and embedded it in cement next to George Eastman's card in the front lobby. And, you know, because I did so much, I cared about the company. You know, on the weekend, you would see me out with a broom and a rake in front of a building. I mean, one, I didn't have much to do. Two, you know, somebody's got to do it. And if if people see you cleaning the bathrooms, you know, they're not going to complain, right, as much. So... You know, those are the kind of things that I thought were real critical. But like shows like Undercover Boss, absolutely. Are they a little scripted? Yeah, they're directed a little bit without question. They have a formula. Let's be clear. But, you know, when they did the waste management, when they did, I got my good friend on there, Catherine Munson, who's the CEO of Fast Signs, and she, you know, dressed up as a goth girl and, you know, goes into the gal, which, you know, she's my age, so dressing up as a goth girl, I mean, she did some good makeup on. And I love her dearly, you know, but yeah, they get a chance. They're looking for the factor of someone's going to cry, you know, someone's going to be touched. Now, that doesn't always happen, you know, but most people are people. So you get a cross cut of the population and, but they tend to slide a little bit towards, you know, a little softer side, you know, a little bit. But at the same time, you know, I remember an episode, I think with, Hooters, where somebody wasn't respecting someone, he found a manager and he fired him on the spot because, you know, he was going against the values of the company and treating the young women inappropriately. And I thought, well, good for you. You know, there are those things and you typically have that. And you know this, it's humans you're working with. There are bad people. There are bad communicators. There are great communicators. There are good people. There are lazy people. There are hardworking people. You get it all. And you'll see that in every company that you work with. Now you just got to make your culture or your cadence of your company. I like to talk about cadence and mood. I really try to focus on cadence and mood. Those are things that we can impact. And over time, you impact your culture. People say, well, this is our culture. Well, culture is something that's developed over a long period of time by populations and whatever that population is. And you might like to say that you can say this is going to be our culture, but you've got to make it that way. And it's something that becomes ingrained. It takes a while. But you can affect the mood. 
And because, you know, how many times have you gone into a crappy restaurant, but the mood's great? Or how many times have you gone into a great restaurant and they're so snotty and don't want to work with you, but the food's great? You don't want to go back, right? And so mood's important. And I think cadence, like how many times have you sat in the lobby of a business and you see people plodding along? How you doing? What's going on? And then you see another business where everybody's moving fast and having a great time, wanting to stay afterwards. Let's get some pizza in here. Let's do what we got to do. We got to crush this out. You know, those are things I think, if I'm the leader of my company, those are the things I focus on. What can I do to help you? What can I do to get this? What can we do? You know, I have a joke in my office. They say, well, it's cold in here. I say, well, work harder. You'll warm up, you know, think, you know, (laughs) but it's that kind of fun, fun stuff, right? When you mentioned this, I'm taken back to this time. I used to follow a blog, which was called Mind Valley Insights. It was based on this company, Mind Valley. They would share a lot of their marketing and sales tactics. And I was in that field. So I thought it was amazing. They were sharing that. They invited me to come and visit their office. And when I walked into the office, that mood, that cadence you speak about, I walked in and everybody was working. Everybody was on the zone. Everyone was moving. There were beanbags, but people were on the beanbag and they were like in the zone getting stuff done. And I was like, all right, I'm going to bring in the esoteric here. There was a good vibe. And like, I couldn't put a pulse on it, but I'll tell you what I did next is I went to the cafe downstairs. I sent in a cover letter and announced my resignation in my current work. And I ended up working for this company for seven years. And so what you speak about feels so intangible. And I feel there's like this duality, right? Because there's a swing where it's like, culture is the most important. There's massive benefits. It seems like it's big neglected, but I've also seen companies that are all culture, all about the fluff. And in sales, I've seen a similar thing where they call it like sales as a service and nobody wants to close, nobody wants to push. And, you know, at the executive field, I feel like there's also that duality, which is listen, you know, culture, all that's important. But then it's like bottom line has to happen or the company's dead and you need to have this kind of push. Where do you find that balance today? If you don't make money, you're not going to make it up on volume. That's for sure. You know, but you got to have that. You know, you have to have the yin yang, right? You got to have both sides of it. You got to have like this whole debate right now, like, oh, I only want to work from home. Well, no, you got to have a little bit of both. You know, you got to have some of that balance back and forth, or you got to come in and travel for a certain period of time. We got to see each other. I want to know what you're doing. You know, all whatever it might be, you've got to develop that. We're, and then you've got some people say, well, it's the office or no way. It's my way, the highway, right? And well, that's not going to work anymore. We've already let that cat out of the bag. So there's a balance that has to occur. That's why healthy tension is a great thing. It's a great thing in marriages, it's a great thing in romance, it's a great thing in drama, it's a great thing in business. And so what we have to do is develop that in the business. And I got that from one of my CEOs, Antonio Perez at Kodak. You know, he taught me about that. That's one of the best things I learned from him was about the need for healthy tension, how we debated things, how we argued about things, that we still could be friends, we could still have all those things, you know. I remember one time he told me, he says, if you let them do this to you, he goes, I will fire you. And I was driving with him to go shooting. We used to go shooting on a Saturday every couple months, shotguns and, you know, skeet shooting and things like that. We just outdoor people, the officers of the company, the four of us, the top ones, we were all, you know, avid sportsmen. So we like to do that. And so we would get together. But he told me as I was driving him down, he says, let's be clear. If you do that, I will fire you. I will still go shooting with you, but I will fire you. You know, that was his way of saying, you're stand for what I ask you to go do, do that. Do not let them wear you down. And that's what you're supposed to do. And, but that was tension between us because I was like saying, Hey, look, they're really giving me a hard time. And, you know, and he was letting me know, no, it's okay, but don't let me down. Hmm. 
I wanted to ask you the fact that I noticed when it comes to executives, there seems to be, especially if you look at CEOs, I think there's a very strong bias or at least a tendency that a lot of the people in those positions have a background in marketing or sales. And I'd be curious to know if you're having a sales background, does that give you the advantage to get to the top of a company? Well, absolutely. I mean, in terms of you can sell things. In fact, I think more CEOs need to do that. There've been a bigger trend where most CEOs are now coming from being a CFO. Very few CEOs are from marketing. Very few. It's almost unheard of to do that. You really have to have a sales background or you have to have P&L background. You have to really have some strong P&L background. But you can overcome that if you're in the sales side of it because you really know how to deliver the top line. Top line growth is important in any company. If you're not growing, you're dying. That's an imperative. Especially you see that more in smaller companies, mid-size, mid-cap companies, than you see in the Fortune, say, 500, Fortune 1000. There's not as many salespeople at those roles just because of the intricate nature and the, the complicated nature of those companies. So that's why you typically see people with a lot more background, a lot more experience. You know, even myself, having bought and sold hundreds of companies before I became the CMO of a Fortune 100 company, I'd been a head of sales and marketing at a couple billion dollar company. We bought 118 companies, so and rolled it up, went public, and then I became, you know, the chief marketing officer of, of a much bigger company. You know, it's like, and by the way, that's not an easy thing to do because you know. I'm sitting around going, making billion-dollar decisions, certainly million-dollar decisions, and I would go like, well, how am I supposed to make this? Well, I just take the zeros off. And I say, was this a good decision back in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, where I'm from? And that's how I made my decisions. You know, take the zeros off. It sounded like a good, sound decision, even though it might be millions of dollars or impact a lot of people. That's how I made those decisions. I'd say besides the background in sales, we're talking about a certain type of individual can thrive in these positions. It sounds like there's some psychological resilience that is necessary. Is that something that you absolutely have to nurture before you even consider yourself wanting to be in this kind of position? Or you better develop it pretty quick. It's a dog-eat-dog world typically in those positions. I mean, while the you know three or four key officers might be aligned, not always, there's things that occur Certainly those that report into us and around us are, you know, trying to work their way up so that, you know, you take a few knives thrown at you, a lot of shots thrown at you and, and a few in the back sometimes. So you have to, at that level, you have to be pretty strong in your own values of who you are, right? You said that, you complimented me, I appreciated that, you know. I'm lucky that in my life, I kind of grew up knowing these are the things I believe in, these are my strong convictions. Now, sometimes that's not easy to do. I can remember the First three days on job, I made a decision, and I got called up to the CEO's office. First time I'd seen him since before he hired me. You know, I made a decision based on something, let's go with this. And it was some language that was used in a video that was shown at a Wall Street Journal conference, which also made the national news and was featured on CBS. And in there, you know, it used the word cojones. Okay. You know, like the guys got cojones. And so I ran it by the women's group saying, hey, are you okay with this? And the execs that brought it to me, and by the way, this was done before I even got there. So they presented to me and said, we are, were you okay this? And I said, well, I want to hear from the women's groups in our company that we don't get in trouble because we're talking about a man's testicles here and we're using the word cojones. So I want to make sure everybody's okay. Hey, listen, head of brand, you're a woman. Hey, bring the women's group. Everybody okay? Everybody's okay. And I said, go with it. And it was a huge hit, except that 
I got called up to the chairman's office, and he said, hey, Jeffrey, you know, sit down. I said, no, I can stand. He goes, no, sit down. I knew right then this was serious. Like He goes, Jeffrey, do you understand the meaning of the word cojones? And I said, well, I think I do. He says, I don't think you do. He goes, see, I'm from Spain. <laughs> you are not. And the word cojones is the most guttural word that you could use for a man's anatomy. It is like using the C word to describe a woman's vagina. Do you understand now? I said, yes, sir, I do. He said, did you get this okay before you released this vile video? And I said, no, that was my decision, solely my decision. Team brought it to me. I checked it out with the women's groups. They said it was okay. I let it go. He goes, did you check it with the Hispanic groups? And I go, no, sir, I did not. He goes, there you have made your mistake. That is one. Do not do that again. You know, so, you know, it's like, boom. So, I mean, I was literally almost throwing up, right? You know, you know I'm a 40-some-year-old man. I'm head of a marketing for a multi-billion-dollar company, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I'm getting addressed down, you know, in the chairman's office, okay? On the top floor, boom, had to go through security, the whole bit, you know, even for me. I report to the guy. And, yeah, that's high stakes, right? That's high stakes. And so, but I learned a lesson right? That was my lesson. Okay, now I won't make that mistake again, right? But in the end, he taught me as I learned other things, did anyone die? No one died, okay? Could it have been better? Yes. That's always one of my rules. Did anybody die, right? Did we violate? Did we do it on purpose? Was it intentional? You know, these are the things you want to kind of look at. And he knew my actions weren't intentional, you know, but he was letting me know that that was a serious infraction, that's a serious thing. Do you understand you hold the company's, you know, vision, mission, brand, the essence of the brand? If you make a mistake like a Bud Light, if you make a mistake like the new Coke, if you make a mistake like the new Netflix, right, you will be on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. And more importantly, you will have me on the front page of the Wall Street Journal explaining why I fired you. You know, but that's the way it works, man. And by the way, when you're in those rooms like that, that's high stakes. That's what it is. You know, and you live by the sword, you die by the sword. And, you know, I've learned at that level, that's the way you play. Man, terrifying and exciting at the same time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And by the way, and you're doing things sometimes, Jason, and you don't know that if it's right. You don't know. You know, I'm making decisions about stuff like, you know, I made one decision where we did a big commercial. It was on Celebrity Apprentice. You know, I was a judge on Apprentice for three years. And we made this big decision and we put out this campaign and literally spent millions of dollars on this texting campaign. And I walk in on Monday after we launched it and we had two texts, two, two, not like two million, two. And then I had to say, well, what the hell was wrong with this campaign? Well, we ask everybody to text in a motion picture theater. Well, what do you do when you walk into a motion picture theater? You turn your phone off. So, you know, what idiot came up with that idea? I did. But I put it through an entire group of marketing people, some 30-some marketing people, and no one raised their hand and said, Jeff, what do you do when you walk into a motion picture theater? You know, and I said, well, you turn your phone off. I said, where the hell were you when we came up with this decision? You know, I remember I turned to everybody and said, did anyone die? No one died. So now someone will die in this room if you don't get this thing fixed, right? You know, because I've got to go before the board of directors. I've got to go before the chairman of the company and explain why we spent millions of dollars on the campaign. We got two texts. Was that the moment when legal and HR walked in again? <laughs> yeah, basically, yeah. It's like that kind of thing. Yeah, well, they did because I used Vinny Pastore in the commercial who was called Big Pussy on The Sopranos. And I used to, 
Part of the reason I hired him was because I got to say big pussy in the executive committee meetings, and it used to piss off HR and legal, so I like that. <laughs> I only know this because my dad has a pinball machine of the Sopranos, and his name always comes up when you do a hit. Like his, Anyways, sidebar. You actually sound exactly like the pinball machine. They're like, Antonio, big pussy. He was a nice guy. <laughs> He's a friend. He's a friend. Okay. Hey, there's one thing I want to open up a little tangent with you, which is I see a lot of startups and, you know, you're working in a world that is at a scale that most people don't comprehend when you're talking about the real C-suite executives. But I see a lot of startups and like founders, they'll have a business card. They just launched. They're a solopreneur and they put CEO on the card. What do you think about that? The fact that that title gets thrown everywhere. Yeah, but that's good. They are the chief executive officer. There's no difference between a business in Wall Street and a business in Main Street. It's just the number of zeros. Same positions, you know, same same, same structures. They should be. I can get that you could be called a founder. That's a cool thing. I can get you could be called a co-founder or the CEO, chairman, whatever. Those roles, you've earned them. Those are appropriate to use, you know? Nothing wrong with that at all. It's just don't act like those bigger companies, you know? Don't put the airs on, you know? Let's remember... You know, let's remember who we are, you know. While I might have been there, I'm not there now, right? So I can't act like that. You know, people ask me, what do you miss most about being at that level? And I always say the people, but it's really the planes, right? There's a difference the way that you act. So I don't book business class or first class. I book coach, you know. I get the cheapest tickets and I use hotel tonight and I use this and I do this and I do this so that I make sure that the team knows I'm with them. The way you're treated, I'm treated. Don't expect anything more, you know? And uh, and so I think those are important to know. So know who you are, know who you're serving, know what you're doing. I love that. Jeffrey, I had so much fun on the conversation today, but there's one question I ask every guest when they come on my show, which is, you are on the Selling with Love podcast. What does Selling with Love mean to Jeffrey? <laughs> That's a great question. First of all, it's Doing the things you love to do with people that you love and doing things that they love and to get them to where they want to go. There's nothing better than to solve people's problems, you know? And with that, every business needs to sit down and say, hey, what problem am I solving? And if I'm solving your problem, man, that's love. That's great. That's good stuff. And do it in the best way possible that you can based on your own values and the way in which you can deliver and respect other people. And if you can do that, everybody should do that. That's what we should do every single day. And it's not always easy. And I always try to think about it. You know, in the C-suite network, we get together and we have hundreds, if not thousands of people sometimes on our calls. And I always say, remember the person next to you might be a billionaire, might be running a billion dollar business, might be a startup, or might be having a tough day. Don't forget those kinds of things when you show up in the C-suite. Jeffrey, thank you so much for your time for coming on the show. This was a fantastic conversation. I got so much out of it of clarity and understanding of what happens at that level. And I think I have a lot of empathy and appreciation for people that operate at that level. I think for a lot of the listeners, there might be an excitement about going towards these levels and maybe a better relationship to develop with their leaders within their companies. I also love the fact that we're talking about this tension around pushing for the things that are less tangible, but so important, like the values, the culture, and things to get people in the right move and having that cadence, but also never forgetting that the real role that we have to make sure is that we thrive and survive as a company. Growth is necessary. You can't neglect that and just be all 
what would be more of the soft skills in the leadership space. I love that you had your own self-awareness and how in any position, particularly at these high stakes, you need to know yourself. You need to have that kind of self-growth and being able to stand for what you want to believe so that you don't get shaken when all these things happen. There's a lot of pressure. Decisions are big. And so having self-knowledge, understanding the values, being able to be strong, they're all amazing things you have to do at that level. And I love that now you're really supporting taking care of what you would say, that loneliness that happens when you play at that level. And for all of those of you who are in these kinds of positions and want to be part of a great network, check out csuitenetwork.com. I'll put a link in the show notes so you guys can see what Jeffrey has put together so that it's a little less lonely when you're amongst peers that are also making these big decisions in the process as well. Jeffrey, once again, thank you so much for coming on the show. And for all of you listening, keep leading with love, keep selling with love, and go for gold. I am your host, Jason Mark Campbell, and this is the Selling with Love podcast. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors, and add blocks. No custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise, and with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite.